Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barton in Washington. Today is Wednesday, October 19th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Ethiopian forces seized three towns in northern Tigray. It isn't clear who they would be negotiating with if they succeed. So it looks more like 2020 rather than 2022. A new UN report says at least one billion children around the world live in poverty. Botswana farmers welcome the lifting of EU beef export ban. African immigrant candidates compete in this year's U.S. midterm elections. Heavy rains and devastating floods continue to ravage 18 countries in western central Africa. A freight and rail union signs a deal to end South Africa's transport strike. We trust that Francis will do everything in their power to make sure that our members can report for work safely so the productivity can And our second of 10 profiles of the first annual Africa Digital Innovation Competition for the continent's startups. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Ethiopian government forces and their allies have captured the city of Sheri and two more towns in the Tigray region in an offensive that aims to take control of airports and federal infrastructure. The attack has been met with international calls for an immediate ceasefire and for neighboring Eritrea to withdraw troops from the region. The fighting has also dashed hopes for African Union-led peace talks. Mohamed Yusuf reports from VOA's Africa News Center in Nairobi. After more than seven weeks of renewed fighting, Ethiopian government forces, allied militias and Eritrean troops are taking territories from the Tigray rebel group in the north of the country. In a statement, the Ethiopian government says its forces have taken control of Alamata, Korem and Shire City in the Tigray region and will coordinate with aid groups to get aid into those areas. The rebel Tigray People's Liberation Front acknowledged losing ground to the government troops but said it will defend itself against the enemies. William Davison is International Crisis Group's senior analyst for Ethiopia. He says continued fighting and increased violence against civilians are likely. Shire is the second largest city, somewhat strategic, at a, you know, something of a crossroads, potentially uh, making it easier to advance towards you know, Aksum and, and Adwa. So a strategic and, and psychological boost. But of course, we're yet to see how quickly this advance will continue. It's possible there'll be some rapid advance towards Mekele, or there could be you know, resistance along the way that, that prevents that. On Monday, the Ethiopian government said it was seeking to take control of critical infrastructure in the region, including airports and communications facilities. The war in Tigray is nearing the two-year mark with no sign of peace in sight. Davison says planned peace talks between the TPLF and the government, maybe for naught if the government asserts authority in Tigray. It isn't clear who they would be negotiating with if they succeed. So it looks more like 2020 rather than 2022, meaning that in 2022 there's been a focus on a negotiated settlement before the resumption of the conflict. But like I say, if they're trying to take control of all of Tigray, it isn't clear who they will be negotiating with at the end of it. This month's planned peace talks in South Africa and other peace processes failed to launch as the sides continue to disagree on the venue and mediators of the reconciliation efforts. The head of the Horn Institute for Strategic Studies, Hassan Khananji, says all means possible need to be used to bring the factions 
to the negotiating table. It's important that uh, the parties also present mediators who are going to appear at least to be impartial and neutral to both parties. Part of the challenge in recent uh, you know, months has been the perception that some mediators may not exactly be neutral. It's going to be important that uh, the framework of mediation also involves a degree of carrots and sticks to ensure that uh, spoilers are not going to have their way because without uh, the ability to enforce the agreement, of course, it's going to be violated. Kananji adds that without some incentives for the parties just to come to the table, both sides may be reluctant to negotiate at all. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. The state-owned company that runs South Africa's freight, rail and port systems is a step closer to ending a strike that has idled imports and exports for nearly two weeks. The union that represents a majority of workers from Transnet has signed a three-year wage deal to end the work stoppage. But as Vicky Stock reports, not everyone is happy about the move. The agreement is aimed at ending the walkout, which began October 6th and cost the country $44 million a day. Kurbis van Fieren is the General Secretary of the Majority United National Transport Union, or UNTU, which signed the multi-year agreement with Transnet. He says the deal is binding on all workers since it represents more than half of the company's 40,000 unionized workers. Panfiran made his comments as the South African Transport and Allied Workers Union, or SATAU, the minority union in the dispute, said it would still picket and has consulted lawyers. Panfiran explained his group's position. Unfortunately, we don't always see eye to eye because our philosophies and values both differ. And uh, our understanding of the impact of a protracted strike and the effect that that can have on the greater economy and the potential job losses that the economy can suffer is maybe not necessarily shared by Satao. He added that Satao has the right to continue with the industrial action, but their strike is now unprotected and they are exposing their members to disciplinary action, which could include dismissal. Anele Kitt, the Deputy Secretary-General of the South African Transport and Allied Workers Union, says the majority union betrayed them. Even during the last negotiations, they left Satao and went to sign an agreement behind our back. Satao has been holding out for an inflation-related increase. In July, South Africa's inflation rate was at 7.8%, the highest in 13 years. Ubuntu settled for 6% as well as medical and housing allowance increases. Satao also says it wants a no-retrenchment clause in the wage agreement. Ubuntu's Fanfiren says his union decided not to insist on that because Transnet gave guarantees that it will follow the legal procedures for retrenching staff should it be necessary. He shed light on how Transnet, which, like most state-owned enterprises in South Africa, is battling financially, can afford the increases. So as far as what we have been informed, uh, their customers, especially in the ports, has come on board. They have offered Transnet assistance through a extra charge which they are willing to pay on every container that is uh, offloaded or dealt with or processed. He also says his union is concerned about intimidation of workers. We trust that Transnet will do everything in their power to make sure that our members can report for work safely. So the 
productivity can continue to resolve the backlog that exists currently. Satao's kit said the leadership of the union was heading to the country's main port in Durban for talks with other members Wednesday on the legal opinion they have received. He said for now they remain on strike. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has urged all parties to act in the best interest of the country. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. Women and children have suffered globally due to impacts of conflict, the COVID-19 pandemic, and climate change. According to the new study by the United Nations, since the last Every Woman, Every Child report was published in 2020, hunger, child marriage, sexual violence, and adolescent anxiety have all increased. Maureen Ojiambo reports. From Nairobi. At least 25 million children were either unvaccinated or undervaccinated in 2021, 6 million more than in 2019, increasing their risk of contracting deadly diseases. According to UNICEF, millions of children missed out on school during the pandemic, majority of them more than a year, while approximately 80% of children in 104 countries and territories experienced learning loss because of school's closure. The Director of Social Policy and Social Protection at UNICEF, Natalia Rose, says millions of children lack access to education, nutritious food, clean water and shelter. UNICEF's targets for 2025 are ambitious, but we need ambitious targets. Children's lives depend on it. Now is the time to influence positive change, to ensure an inclusive recovery, to accelerate progress around the Sustainable Development Goals, and to make a meaningful impact on the lives of millions of children around the world. Working together with governments, resource partners, and others, we can make the right policy choices and make a real difference in reducing child poverty in all its forms. The United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres says authorities have failed to address the gaping inequalities at the root of global crisis from the COVID-19 pandemic to conflicts and the climate emergency. This is the reason women, children and adolescents have severely suffered from maternal mortality to education losses to severe malnutrition. The report provides wide-ranging evidence that children and adolescents are exposed to conflict and the economic circumstances of their families. Rosie says the goal is to ensure equity in delivering social services for underprivileged children and women. We work to strengthen and expand the coverage of social protection systems so that they can effectively reach all children, while also ensuring that those most at risk of discrimination and exclusion are systematically included. The report indicates that a child born in low-income country has an average life expectancy at birth of around 63 years, compared to 80 in a high-income country. An estimate of 149 million children were underdeveloped in 2020. Africa is the only region where the number of children affected by impaired growth increased over the past 20 years, from 54.4 million in the year 2000 to 61.4 million in 2020. The report calls upon the global community to address this damaging trajectory and protect the promises made to women, children and adolescents in the UN Sustainable Development Goals. It advocates for countries to continue investing in health services to address all crises and food insecurity, as well as empower women and young people around the world. Reporting for Viewers Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Jumbo in Nairobi, Kenya.
You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Butt in Washington. Today is Wednesday, October 19th. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Heavy rains and devastating floods across western Central Africa have affected people in 19 countries, claiming hundreds of lives, wiping out livelihoods, and displacing tens of thousands from their homes in an area already hit by a hunger crisis. Jahun Sede Majlanga is the regional communication officer in West Africa for the World Food Program. He tells viewers Carol Van Dam that more than 3 million people in Africa have been affected by recent floods and that it is not getting better anytime soon. In addition to people affected, we have also large hectares of, of, of cropland, more than 600,000 hectares of cropland that are destroyed in, uh, in the country. And, and this is happening when the country is already experiencing some difficult food security uh, situation with more than 4 million people already uh, affected by food insecurity, especially in, in the northeastern part of the country, sorry. What is the WFP doing in those areas to help the displaced, those affected by the floods and the heavy rains? So uh, right now in the hard-hit countries, including Nigeria, Chad, Sierra Leone, and uh, the Gambia, the World Food Program is currently on the ground uh, working with national governments to uh, provide emergency food assistance uh, to the people, especially those who are really uh, hard hit by the floods. So we provide them. We're, we're distributing uh, food in chat, for instance. We're distributing hot rations to those who have been affected and displaced and forced to leave their homes and live in public spaces like schools, like churches, and, uh, and public spaces in general. So we're distributing hot rations to those people. In other areas, we distribute cash to people so they can go those whose food and livelihoods have been destroyed. So this is the immediate response. But we work also, we support communities on longer-term solutions to climate extremes by uh, rolling out programs that can allow communities to better prepare for and recover very quickly from floods and, and other climate uh, disasters. So there's a, prog- a program, for instance, called the Anticipatory Action through which we we set up early warning systems to provide communities with information. And this, for instance, is happening now in Niger, where 200,000 people in most at-risk locations receive warning messages through SMS or through radio so that they can better be prepared for uh, any climate-related uh, crisis that might be happening. That was John Sede, Majalanga, the regional community communication officer in West Africa for the World Food Program. You're speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam. Americans will vote in midterm elections on November 8. The outcome will determine which party, Republican or Democrat, will control the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate. There are also candidates running for state governorships and local offices. Winfred Russell is a Liberian immigrant who is running for mayor of Brooklyn Park, the fourth largest city in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area. He says there are a total of four Liberian immigrant candidates running for 
various elected offices in Minnesota. Russell tells me that he's running for mayor to continue the good work that he has been doing for the city in the last 15 years. I'm running for mayor because I believe I have what it takes to make a great mayor of the city. I bring a very unique perspective, but I also bring the experience. Having worked in this community for a very long time, I've been a resident here for 20 years. And during all that period, I have worked to try to improve the lives of people. I have served on many commissions in the city. And so I think becoming the mayor gives me a really good pedestal to continue doing the work that I have been doing for the last 15 or so years. The last round of election, there were many diaspora candidates. What is it like now in this coming midterm election? There are still a lot of diaspora candidates. I mean, one of the unique things about Minnesota, I think that the mainstream press miss out on is the progress that people, especially from the African immigrant diaspora, the progress that they are making here in the state of Minnesota. Minnesota is, is still a largely white state. Uh, but there have been significant improvements and significant upward mobility of people of the African immigrant diaspora here and the contributions that they were making. We all know about Ilhan Omar, the first African immigrant to be elected to the U.S. Congress. Uh, she's from Minnesota. And so um, her run, of course, it has inspired a lot of people. And so you, you have a lot of African immigrants running in various elected positions here in the state of Minnesota. At the municipal level, at the state level, at the county level, on the school board, um, state legislature, I mean, we are reflected in all of those different places in the state of Minnesota. You are originally from Liberia, and every time Liberian politicians come here, they visit Minnesota, I guess because of the large population of Liberian immigrants living there. What lessons do you think uh, can be transmitted back home? You running for an office here and politics here compared to politics in Liberia. You're right. I mean, as we speak, there is a Liberian uh, elected official uh, in Minnesota. They've always, they're not just Liberian. So they, and one of the things that uh, we do, Sabati, is when they get here, uh, for example, we take them around. We try to, to expose them to a lot of uh, what we do, how we engage our constituents, how, you know, we're not about uh, the big titles. And, you know, we, as you know, here, we're very responsive to our constituents. So we show them the sunshine approach that we use in all of our processes and all of our governance processes. And the hope is that they will learn a thing or two about what we do and especially the things that are applicable within their context when they go back. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you, Mr. Bhatti, and thanks for the opportunity. That was Wayne Fred Russell, a Liberian immigrant who is running for mayor of the city of Brooklyn Park in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The U.S. Africa Business Center of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is holding its first Africa Digital Innovation Competition for Africa Startups. VOA is working as a media partner with the African Business Center on the initiative. Out of 17,000 candidates in 50 countries in Africa, and for the next two weeks, we will bring you a look at each one. Today, we hear from Benjamin Baisi Asedu from Ghana. His company, Trader X, is helping farmers and their communities boost their production and sale of commodities by connecting them to international markets.
I'm Benjamin Baisisiedu. Um, I'm 32 years old from Accra, Ghana. I'm the CEO and co-founder of TraderX Ghana Limited. Now the digital innovation competition is to us a prestigious um, competition and also gives a cash investment. I think furthermore, it also um, provides its winners with uh, mentorship and that for us, you know, is more than we actually were looking for. So it was more than a perfect fit for us. The distinction to be a part of the top 10 in the whole of Africa uh, for us really validates the potential of our mission and our vision at TraderX to support uh, smallholder farmers in Africa. So TraderX is basically an agricultural commodity trading company. Essentially, what we are actually doing is uplifting smallholder farmers and their communities by elevating their production and boosting trade of their commodities to the wider international markets. And we are doing that through formalized exchanges. Um, for the farmers, uh, we are supporting them and providing them with services that will improve their yields, will reduce their post-harvest losses, and ultimately help them to earn more and do less manual work. For the market right now, as the world is coming for new sources of commodities, you know, TraderX is connecting local farmers to the wider international market to meet this demand. The first thing we will do if we win the competition, we will celebrate. Having an endorsement or this type of endorsement from such a prestigious third party will be invaluable to our fundraising efforts. Benjamin Baisi Asedu from Ghana and the founder of Trader X. He is one of the 10 finalists in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's first Africa digital innovation competition for African startups. We'll hear from all 10 finalists over the next several days, and you can check out voaafrica.com for all the competitors and the winners who will be announced later this month. And that's it for this Wednesday, October 19th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for coming on board with us this morning. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barton in Washington, wishing you will have a wonderful day. The search is on for Africa's best and brightest minds in finance, cybersecurity, technology, and anything digital. Making social impact through cutting-edge technologies, innovation, and creativity in Africa. Out of 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West, and Southern Africa, only three will be selected from the top 10 continental finalists from Egypt, Nigeria, Ghana, Zimbabwe, Kenya, and Cameroon. Join the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners, including the Voice of America, when the three finalists are featured at the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit in December 2022 in Washington. Stay tuned.
A recent study suggests breaching the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit above pre-industrial global temperatures could trigger a series of tipping points that may lead to irreversible changes to our climate system. Hello, I'm Rick Pantaleo. Study lead author David McKay joins me to talk about the consequences of setting off these tipping points. Listen Saturday and Sunday to the Science Edition of Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. 